Good morning again, and thank you very much indeed, Mickey, for the invitation to be speaking today. Almost everything around us contains pores, P-O-R-E-S. The floor under our feet, the pews on which we're sitting, our skin and our brain are porous. Pores are a necessary part of our health and well-being. For example, blood on our skin opens and closes the pores of our skin, enabling us to cope with temperature changes. Pores are also a necessary part of the world around us. The pores in the Earth's surface enable the movement of vital water that sustains life. Interestingly, scientists are exploring ways to restore climate gases responsibly in the Earth's surface. In particular, high-level research has been carried out at using mathematics and natural sciences to solve ways to store carbon gases in porous rocks beneath the sea. Porosity is an important aspect of the world around us and to our own life and well-being. Now let me take this notion of porosity to a totally different level. The porosity of the universe. I'm speaking of a non-material, supernatural dimension of existence beyond the space-time material world that is capable of movement in and through the material universe. And that brings me to my first theme this morning, Out of the Silence. Come with me to the reading from Luke chapter 1 and look at verse 5, where we read, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly order of Abijah. The Herod here is Herod the Great, the only Herod who was given the title king. At the decree of Mark Antony and the Senate in Rome, he ruled over much of Palestine, including Judea and Galilee. It was during Herod's reign that some remarkable events began to unfold. To begin with, the events were to change the lives of two people, Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth. Zechariah was a priest of Abijah, one of the 24 divisions of priests. Elizabeth would have been the daughter of a priest. Described as righteous before God didn't mean that Zechariah and Elizabeth were sinless, but rather that they served God faithfully. Both would have expected God's blessing of children, but with the passing of years, this hope had been extinguished. But that was not the end of their story, for Luke records an extraordinary event that occurred when Zechariah had been selected to offer one of the sacrifices of incense in the temple. Now this, let me say, is a very great honour and would have been the most important moment in Zechariah's life, for he would... <clears throat> Pardon me, for he would only do it once. Typically, the selected priest went with other priests into a holy place in the temple 
to offer the sacrifice of incense. The other priest would then withdraw, leaving him alone to make the offering. But something unexpected occurred when Zechariah took the sacrifice into the holy place in the temple. An angel of the Lord appeared, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. Luke wants us to feel the reality of Zechariah's agitation. He was terrified. Some try to explain the angelic appearance psychologically, conjecturing this as a paranormal experience that was due to the state of Zechariah's mind at the moment of offering his sacrifice. However, the Bible reveals the reality of a transcendental universe that is able to intersect with the material universe we know. Such is the porosity of the universe we know that messengers or angels sent from God can enter ours. If Zechariah's experience was because of an overexcited imagination, Luke would have recorded that Zechariah heard a voice rather than saw a vision. Don't be afraid, Zechariah, the angel reassured him. In verses 13 through 17, we learn that Zechariah's prayer and the prayer of many others was to be answered. Zechariah and Elizabeth were to have a baby who would be special. He was to be named John, which means the Lord is gracious. He would bring joy and gladness, not just to Zechariah and Elizabeth, but to many. And verse 15 tells us he would be great before the Lord. And even before his birth, John would be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit of God who ensures that God's plans and purposes are effectively implemented. The baby would be the promised Elijah that Malachi had spoken of as we read in our first reading today from Malachi chapter 4. But John would be no ordinary prophet. While he is explicitly compared with Elijah, as we see in verse 17, he is also unlike Elijah. His ministry focus would be on the message, a message to be preached rather than on miracles. John's ministry would call people to turn back to the Lord, in repentance and in faith. Their lives would reflect a revitalized, godly living, a godly living that was needed amongst God's people so that they would be truly ready for the coming of God's King. Someone expected was the angel's announcement that Zechariah wanted a sign. Just look at verse 18. How will I know that this is so, he asked. I'm an old man. My wife is getting on in years. But look what followed Zechariah's failure to trust God's word. We see it in verses 19 and 20. The angel replied, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have sent to 
been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. God had personally sent Gabriel, a great one, from his very presence to bring good news to the old priest. And Luke uses the word good news that is later used for the preaching of God's gospel. After some 400 years of silence, God was directly intervening in world events. To reject the messenger and the message that came directly from God was most unwise. There would be consequences, and there were. For the angel said, But now, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time, you will become mute, unable to speak, until the day these things occur. Zechariah's muteness was not God's judgment, but rather God's disciplinary wake-up call. Now, events like this disturb us today, do they not? If they are true, they awaken us to the reality of the supernatural, that there is more to life than the material world in which we find ourselves. And yet the idea of an existence beyond the material universe of time and space goes against today's wisdom. In a brief history of time, the late Stephen Hawking wrote, we are such insignificant creatures on a minor planet of a very average star in the outer suburb of one of a hundred billion galaxies. So it's difficult to believe in a God that could care about us or even notice our existence. Dr. Henry Fritz Schaefer, one of the world's leading quantum chemists, has written, my response to the statement by Hawking and to others that have said this over the years is that's a silly thing to say. Human beings thus far appear to be the most advanced species in the universe. Maybe God does care about us. Where Hawking surveys the cosmos and concludes that man's defining characteristic is obscurity, I consider the same data and conclude that humankind is very special. Maybe God does care about us. Yes, indeed. Look again at the angel's words. I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I've been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. The baby to be born will turn many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. But what about people who were in church that day, in the temple? Luke reports they'd been waiting and wondering about Zechariah's delay. They may have been getting impatient, as churchgoers sometimes do today, when the notices or the sermon have become overlong. Priests, at that time, were expected to be concise in their prayers as they offered the sacrifice in the holy place. 
when Elias Zechariah did appear and couldn't speak, people concluded he'd seen a vision. Mute as the angel said he would be, Zechariah indicated the closing of evening prayers, perhaps motioning his hands. But the angel's extraordinary announcement continued to be fulfilled. For when Zechariah returned home, Elizabeth did become pregnant. Why then did she hide herself for five months, as we read in verse 24? Surely she would have been overjoyed, wanting to get the news out. David Samura has noted that in the ancient world, the first five months of pregnancy were regarded as crucial for the safety of the pregnancy. This makes sense of Dr. Luke's detailed record of Elizabeth's words in verse 25. Thus the Lord has done to me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among my people. Luke is telling us that through this unexpected supernatural intervention, God was fulfilling his promise to Zechariah and Elizabeth. The event marks that following his silence from the time of Malachi, some 400 years before, God had not forgotten his promises that he had announced through the prophets. Once more, out of the silence, God was speaking. Which brings us to a second theme, authenticity. So come back with me to the opening lines of the chapter. Luke writes, Since many have undertaken to set down an orderly account of the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed on to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Right at the beginning, Luke wants us to understand that he's writing a history. He's setting down an orderly account of events that have been fulfilled among us. Luke's writing is not myth or legend, which has the appearance of a history, such as Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. Furthermore, his writing was testified by eyewitnesses. Now, this is most important. Thucydides, the acclaimed ancient Greek historian, wrote in his History of the Peloponnesian War, where I have not been an eyewitness myself, I've investigated with the utmost accuracy attainable every detail that I've taken at second hand. So Luke is telling us, while he's not an eyewitness, he did what Thucydides did. He verified his references with those who were there. Clearly, there were both written accounts and oral traditions in circulation when Luke, Luke put pen to paper. But he also did what his contemporaries did. He provided reference points with contemporary events that his first readers would have known. And so, back in verse 5, he introduces the time of the angel's appearance to Zechariah as being in the days of King Herod of Judea. 
Now notice back in verse 2, Luke's references to the eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. The construction of his phrase tells us that these eyewitnesses and ministers were one and the same group of people. Significantly, the word minister is not the usual word for minister. It's the same word that Luke uses in chapter 4 and verse 20 to refer to the synagogue official known as the Chazan. The Chazan has the task of running the synagogue, but also ensuring that God's word, the scrolls of God's word, are kept accurately and that they are read regularly. And the, result, and the role of the Hazan in the synagogue exists today. Here in Luke chapter 1, the Hazan is not the Hazan of the synagogue, but the Hazan who is also an eyewitness of the historical Jesus. Kenneth Bailey, who is a highly respected Middle Eastern scholar, asks, is it not possible that this Christian Hazan was also the keeper of the Jesus scrolls in the sense that he is an eyewitness, is a guardian of the authenticity of the oral tradition about Jesus? You see what's happening. From the outset of his work, Luke was committed to protect the truth of events that had taken place. Furthermore, we can calculate the time when Luke met with these eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. Volume 2 of Luke's writing, The Acts of the Apostles, there are sections known as the we sections, times when Luke himself was traveling with Paul the Apostle. By piecing together these sections, we can assume that Luke was in Jerusalem in the years 58 through 60. And during this time, we can assume that he was checking the details of his draft account with the apostles and others who had been with Jesus throughout his ministry. Jesus' mother, Mary, was no doubt a member of that wider group. As keepers of the Jesus narrative, they could authenticate Luke's writing. And if his account didn't measure, measure up, they would have said so. And that brings us to verses 3 and 4. I too decided, after investigating everything carefully from the very first, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Luke wants us to know that he has looked at all the evidence very carefully. He's thoroughly checked all the witnesses and their accounts are consistent. He's now put together an orderly account of these events for a timeless record. Theophilus, the first recipient of the book. From the tone of Luke's reference, we can conclude that Theophilus was an individual. He was most likely a Roman citizen of some standing who may have wanted to find out more about Jesus. And in verse 4, Luke is more specific about his purpose. He writes that so that Theophilus may know the truth concerning things about which you have been instructed.
the last word in the original text in verse 4 is the word truth, trustworthiness, certainty. Luke wants to stress the authenticity of all he has written. In his commentary on Luke, Darrell Bach has observed, Theophilus's question seems to be, is Christianity what I believed it to be, a religion sent from God? The transcendental coming amongst us out of the silence. Luke's response is yes, yes and yes. The appearance of the angel Gabriel to Zechariah is not the first scene in a box of delights that is nothing more than a dream. Dr. Luke brings us an authentic account of the time God personally stepped out of the silence into human affairs. We live in a porous universe, one into which the transcendent creator God can enter and do his work. God's greatest delight is drawing men and women whom he has created in his image to know and to love him and to enjoy him forever. The special baby gifted to Zechariah and Elizabeth prepared God's people for the first coming of God's king, calling on them to do what? To turn back to the Lord in repentance and in faith. The purpose of the king's first coming was completed with his death, resurrection and ascension. We now live in the era of God's mercy where all of us are called upon to turn back to the Lord with heartfelt repentance and faith, trusting in the word that God has revealed. Is also calling on us to play our part in preparing people around us and beyond us for the second coming, the return of the King. So let me ask, do you really believe that our material universe is porous in the way I've been speaking about? A universe where the transcendent, the supernatural, can come amongst us? That God has spoken out of the silence? That God's revelation is true and trustworthy? That the day will come when God's King will return?